this is the Boxing Betting Show with Tom Craze. My name is Tom Craze and welcome to episode two of the Boxing Betting Show. It's a podcast all about betting, boxing and betting on boxing. Now, I said in the last episode that this show would be coming to you twice a month. That's still the case, but with boxing being boxing, the schedule isn't always as consistent as we'd like it to be. Given then that we're just a few days away from one of the biggest fight weekends this year, I thought it made sense to reshuffle things slightly just to make sure we could fit in a preview on the show. The result is that actually this is a bit of a bumper edition. You're about to listen to interviews with two very different guests, both experts in their own right. We'll get right into it then, and we're going to start with something a little bit different. Matthew Trenhill has well over a decade's combined professional experience as a sports trader, a risk specialist, and an odds compiler. He's also the creator of his own podcast, Inside Betting, which, in his own words, aims to engage others into thinking about betting, um, which he does in his own vastly knowledgeable way. I think everyone has a few people that they could kind of talk to endlessly for hours, and Matthew very much fits into that category for me. I think this is a real treat, and I hope you do too. Matthew, welcome to the show. Now, to many people in the betting industry, certainly in the UK, yours will be a very familiar name already. But for the benefit of a wider audience, could you tell us a little bit more about your background and career so far? Um, and I guess particularly in terms of your extensive experience, really, in sports trading and odds compiling. Yeah, OK. So straight out of, I, I came to university in London and straight out of university, I, I worked part time my final year at university for a sports spread betting company, getting pretty uh, obsessed with it and asking if I could learn to become an odds compiler, uh, which I did. My speciality back then was uh, golf and a bit of rugby, but I had an interest in, I I would say an interest in all sports, an interest in betting for all sports and the odds compiling and the general, I suppose, science slash art behind it. That's what really interested me, although I do enjoy my sports as well. Um, And uh, yeah, I did that for many years, had some time uh, in financial trading before uh, then returning back to betting. So I did some work with uh, some betting syndicates, then also some B2B, business-to-business providers, so selling odds to bookmakers. And now I'm at a point where I work for a company called Sport Radar, who are quite familiar to a lot of people now. Their predominant business is data, whether it be sports data or betting data, and then they use that to sell products, uh, mostly betting products, although they do a lot of um, live score scouting, audiovisual, some, I suppose, uh, general data uh, contracts, these kind of things sell for people who want to put their information on websites or TV or, you know, internet sites, that kind of thing. So yeah, so that's where I find myself now, um, and I deal very much with pre-match odds, as they would say, so the non-live environment, uh, which has always been my area of interest. I, I'd say actually, bizarrely, betting also introduced me to boxing in that, you may or may not be familiar, but William Hill for many years did a sports uh, sports book prize, and it had some incredible books actually that won the prize over the yes, years. Yeah. But without doubt, my favorite book that ever won the award was a book called The Dark Trade, which I consider one of the the best absolutely books donald mccray and uh, and yes so um hearing the sort of the sad story of uh the g-man mcclellan um and and sort of all the other little stories there i think the world of boxing is intoxicating the you know i i'm terribly guilty of over romanticizing boxing at times but i find some of the stories the characters um and just the emotions it can bring out. Um, and the truth is, is that from a bookmaker's, I'll put my other hat on at the moment, uh, bookmakers love anything 
that uh, people get overly emotional about because uh, when Absolutely. you're betting with when you're betting with your heart, you're not betting with your head. So, uh, so yeah, so boxing should be great for bookmakers, and um, I actually think it's pretty good for punters if they uh, can just uh, exercise a bit of caution as well certainly what this episode and and hopefully some of this interview will touch on it's that kind of heart from head separation um that i think is is often a challenge is as you say it's quite an emotive sport and i think a lot of the time you you do have a a kind of tribal element in boxing um that you don't always see in other sports particularly when it's a non-team sport and i think that guides people particularly maybe the more casual punter perhaps more than it should certainly from a a bookmaker's point of view that's obviously music to their ears as, as you say what is it then without making this sound too much like a job interview what, what is it particularly about sports betting that, that kind of most fascinates you and, and i guess more importantly what's what's hooked you in i think it is for me it's actually the um i suppose the drier side of it is it's putting a number on something it's how do we calculate the percentage probability of something happening and that's definitely where my initially my interest started you know i I just couldn't what i remember first being shown you know an excel you know sheet with a lot of statistics in and how you know using these statistics we could you know create probabilities for outcomes and then make odds from them it just seemed um so strange that you could condense something as uh full of powerful narratives and emotions and so on you could condense it down in that way at the time, I didn't sort of fully realize, but, you know, making it, as I say, making it dry, making it boring, in a sense, uh, was the best way to sort of produce odds, because the, the enemy, I suppose, the punter, from our perspective, was someone who was going to have a lot of cognitive biases, you know, they would be thinking, you know, from boxing, recency bias, what happened in the last fight, yep. um, you know, people develop strong favorites, people convinced that certain styles are always preferable i think some of the stereotypes are incredibly powerful in boxing so but the thing is is whenever you have a narrative or something that people read about or listen to that's that powerful it can sort of almost become well that's the fact and the moment you become trading in certainties as a punter that's when the bookmakers got you because you know percentages imply that you know often that things aren't certain. Um, and, you know, so many punters like to think, well, obviously so-and-so is going to win. Obviously, a lot of people thought Mr. Joshua was a pretty good thing to uh, win recently. Indeed. Um, and, and it doesn't necessarily pan out. But it's not just in the heavy... I think the funny thing is, is people said, like, oh, Anthony Joshua is going to, you know, make light work of this. And then straight after the fight, those same punters who maybe, you know, backed him to win in the first few rounds... Well, the same punters are saying, well, that's heavyweight boxing, isn't it? Anyone anyone can lose on the day, can't they? You know, everyone's got a puncher's chance. And it's like, right. well, that's not what you were saying in the pub the night before. You were saying that he's going to... So, um, you know, but punters are brilliant at convincing themselves. But yes, as to what first really interested me, it was almost the fact that you could turn something as, you know, like I always expect my experience of betting up until I went to work at a bookmakers was um, cheering on things in the pub, you know, on a weekend. Yeah. And taking that and turning it into what essentially looked to me like a, you know, a maths exercise or a science experiment, um, rather than being off-putting, I found uh, I found very interesting. I always quite liked stats in sports generally, you know. And then the moment you made it into sort of a, a game that was played on spreadsheets or, or, you know, even just pen and paper working out, it was a problem. And if you like solving problems, then um, 
I think odds compiling has always got an appeal. Um, and money, money always. Whenever there's mo- whenever there's skin in the game, it makes any activity more interesting. So. Um, I remember a quote actually from your your own podcast, Inside Betting, which I've said before and I'll, I'll say again is is absolutely fascinating. Listening to anyone kind of interested in learning more about betting as a whole, or particularly sports betting, it says sports betting is alchemy. It's part science and it's part art, part art rather. Um, that's a very neat sort of compact line. Um, it's kind of stuck with me a little bit, actually, since the since listening to it uh, probably nine, ten months ago now. Could you perhaps expand a bit on what you mean by that? Because obviously the, you've got these two very differing worlds in, in a sense. And, and to kind of say sports betting is, is in the middle of them and it's a kind of an art form in itself might strike those not too familiar with it as, as jarring. Can you explain what you mean? Well, yes. So for me, sports betting, you know, there is almost always um, in all sports, no matter what the sport is, there is certain amount of the picture can be painted with numbers, with statistics. And then there are gaps. And the gaps need to be filled in with the person's intuition. Now, the less gaps there are, the less opportunities there are for intuition. However, there is always some room for intuition. Um, I think of it as two computers, you know, that we've got the computer that works on my desktop and the computer in your brain. And if you can remove the emotion from the computer in your brain, it works as brilliantly, if not better than any computer you can imagine. We can process a huge amount of information and we can make connections between various different things on multiple different layers you know, that we can't necessarily easily put together in a computer model on a, on a computer. Sure. So that intuition, though, is often sculpted over time and through relentless watching, appreciation, reading of about a sport, digesting every element of the sport. And that intuition for how a sport works, it's then yet another leap to turn that intuition into quantifying what it means. So actually turning into odds. Um, so what I always find is nice to have your computer, your statistics with as much data as you can find, and it'll give you a nice starting point. And then the layer on top, I, for me, it's always starts there, give something which doesn't have a bias in it, your starting point, and then try to see what it's missed. You know, where are the holes in it? So for me, that is the blend. I've always been reluctant and there are plenty of people out there who do it and are successful with it who just run the machine and, you know, go out to lunch. You know, the, the machine will do it. Um, but for me, I almost think, and it's, do you know what, it's, it's a degree of stubbornness, to be honest, but, you know, the belief that, you know, even if I've designed the piece of software or the, or the rating system or whatever it may be, I hate the idea that I've ever been made completely redundant. But I am pretty, I'm pretty sure that generally the human element does add, I mean, boxing in particular, because we're talking about a low number of data points for boxing. Yep. You know, even great fighters, uh, you know, a career, you know, a career of 50 fights is a, is a very long career. Um, and if we're talking in the world of maths and statistics, you know, sample sizes of less than 100 are considered, you know, often not so meaningful. So uh, we have to find a way to, um, I, I think that, while I do think there are some stats and some approaches you can use for, for boxing, which, um, you know, can be done on a spreadsheet, um, I definitely think it's a watcher's sport in terms of, you know, it's much more 50-50 numbers versus intuition. And I think that certainly people who've, um, so I mean, some of the, the best boxing betters I know 
are the people who actually did a little bit themselves. Um, so I know sure. some guys who were, were semi, you know, semi-competent amateur boxers and the level of understanding and knowledge they bring to it, they, they almost sometimes, they don't even need to really turn the knowledge into a number necessarily because sometimes they can just spot instances where one fighter is favorite and they say there's absolutely no way that that fighter is favorite to win that fight. It should be the other way around. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in those situations, if they tell me that, I don't quibble too much about, oh, do you make it 1.5 or 1.4? <laughs> you know, I tend to just assume that, right, okay, it's, it's time to have a bet. So, yeah, so in terms of alchemy, yes, um, it's, uh, it's very much um, it's science and intuition, I suppose. But uh, I think, you know, the danger we have is that we always tend to overvalue our own intuition. So that's why it's nice to start with a number because then you can go you can put your numbers in and be like oh i'm definitely going to be backing this bloke i know i'm going to be back oh oh hang on all oh, the spreadsheet says the other bloke's a little bit better right is he right. oh hang on let's look back at the past fights what's oh yeah he did lose that dis- oh yeah no he, that was that fight wasn't that great and suddenly you know you've you've beaten back the the more emotive parts of your intuition and then you start to think about things a bit more coldly, and that's where you can get a good, a, a better, a better sort of a flow of uh, making up your own bets, what bets you want to be having. I, I suppose that's it, it's something that that kind of makes boxing for me stand out as quite unique as a betting proposition. It is that kind of irregularity in a sense. Obviously, it's a, it's a very unique sport um, at the best of times, but you have this kind of fairly sporadic, fairly light schedule anyway but certainly when you compare it to a sport like tennis or football or racing or whatever the sport may be there isn't that same kind of data uh, i guess culture that will let you form a reliable model and it often does feel like whenever the prices go up for a a card let's say for an undercard they'll they'll pop up on a thursday afternoon and kind of in that moment it's 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 almost your opinion against the traders and there isn't a whole lot of stats or data driving what those prices may be and i think what you see quite a lot is this this kind of instant flip-flop particularly when you get these obscure i don't know european or south american fights whatever they may be where you have this instant correction in the market that takes place over the course of a a friday or whatever it may be but i also think it's maybe the reason why there are very very few people if if kind of any with the kind of exception of mma at least factored in who make a living solely from boxing betting simply because there isn't that reliable sample size on um on fights or on fighters Whereas with, with tennis, you've got, I don't know, your, your Federer's or your Nadal's or your Djokovic's who will play each other multiple times each season. You'll, you'll have this kind of fairly strong head-to-head record built up. Whereas in boxing, you've got a, a fighter who will have maybe 30, 40 fights in an entire career. And, it, and, and in that, they'll fight their, their biggest rival maybe, maybe once, maybe twice if we're absolutely lucky. And so you're kind of looking, as you say, in intangibles rather than than cold hard data. It's almost the acid test of how good you are as a as a judge of the sport, because you're 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 kind of left with what you know, if that makes sense. I mean, with with that in mind, without this kind of I, I guess a safety net in some ways, or at least the the machine telling you that you're wrong, or at least backing up what you believe to be true. How do you go about finding finding an edge based on what, what's kind of an abstract concept, really, which is an opinion? I find that I first of all try to think about the things that I would evaluate, I suppose, if I was to price up, you know, for me, always the first point of how to find a bet is how would I make the odds myself? And what information do I have to go on? From my experience, I know that bookmakers will very rarely employ 
a odds compiler, well, very few of them employ odds compilers in general nowadays, but no. they'll very rarely employ an odds compiler whose speciality is purely boxing. Yeah. Uh, I think when the rise of MMA, there were people who were given the task of concentrating on fight sports. But by and large, I mean, if you go back not so long ago, it was someone's part-time, you know, a football trader who liked boxing or something like that. I think we, we've maybe got a bit better in terms of the people we're up against now. You know, they're up, they're, they're sort of putting more effort in. They have the very obvious stuff. I, I would say that almost any better and probably odds compiler to a degree, you know, step one, boxrec.com. I think it's you know pretty much the starting point of anyone trying to price up a fight if they didn't yep. know anything about a fight. But um, box rec for me, you know, so look at the fighters, who have they fought, what are their records. It just so happens that box rec tries to do their own rating system. Um, anyone who's tried to wade through the Wikipedia they do on how the rating system works will be you know scratching their head a bit. It's quite complex. Um, but thankfully they uh, put a nice star rating out of five you know so the very you know the most uh, simplistic way you know you can look to see what let's see someone you know who makes their own numbers based rating you know what you know what num how good they think a given fighter is uh, based purely on the statistics of how they fought previously um, against another you can look instantly so box rec tells you information straight off the bat you know when you look at a fighter's id there you know such as their weight division fine uh their stance so instantly i'm thinking to myself right if i knew nothing about boxing why do i need to know what stance is how does that impact you know if i look through the records of fighters who are say orthodox well do i need to look at how they perform against southpaws do i need to look at how all boxers who are orthodox perform in this division maybe against southpaws whatever it may be <laughs> i get height they tell me height and they tell me reach reach is probably one of the most publicized statistics i suppose in boxing i have to ask myself is it really important or is it something that's so well known it's already always going to be in the price if someone has and also reach you know does reach matter if you're someone who likes to work on the inside, does it matter more if you've got a you know a very stiff jab but not much else? These kind of things you start to think, right, so the website thinks I should know this information. How should I then accumulate this information into my like mental computer? And then when you're looking down the list of all the fights they fought, you're thinking to yourself, again, if you've never sort of never familiar with boxing, you'll you go all the way back to someone's early fights and let you know i can pull up for example um canelo's maybe or something like that you know you look back to sort of the early fights it's like www and you're thinking to yourself well oh, this guy's just really good at boxing isn't he there's just a load of w's here <laughs> and then you're thinking like right well presumably he's not fighting all people the same ability always and then ah yes okay so the first 10 fights are against people with zero stars next to their name next few with one stars next few with two stars right okay so right. now we get it we're seeing how this works so then the next mental step is beating a five star is better than beating a one star but how do i compare one five star win against another five star win so then we become about asking ourselves how do i evaluate for let's say someone has to price up a boxing match very quickly they might just look at 52 wins 35 ko's one loss two draws and it's like, right, okay, against another guy who's got, you know, 10 wins, no losses. It's like, 
and they can literally just price something up if they're you know this is the old days not so much now but you know but you know they could have just literally priced off that basic raw information in a way but you know we want to we don't want to get bogged down in number of punches thrown you know all these kind of metrics they're trying to introduce in boxing just want to look at good performance expected performance bad performance so if a fighter won the fight were they expected to win it as easily as they did or you know as hard as they were did they outperform our expectations so we thought it was going to be a hard fight but they won by technical in the fourth round or um did they underperform so they might have won but really labored over it the judges have given it just about and the reality is is that when you look at the cards you're thinking you know, i'm not even you watch the fight back again the great asset that all people who bet on boxing is definitely watching replays we're not in the era where you used to be able to there used to be a guy in the box rec forum who used to do all the old videotapes for you but nowadays you know right. you can get almost everything so we want to be able to evaluate you know, when you look down the card, you're looking at all these green W's and you've got to find a way to differentiate one green W from another. So it requires you to say, even if you start off by just, let's say every fighter's performance is a zero, right? So a good is a plus one and a bad is a minus one. So every fight you went along and you did plus one, minus one, plus one, and you add them up. You've suddenly got a way, if you apply it across everything you look at, you've got a way of establishing how their performance is that's beyond just did they win the fight did they lose the fight and you might do plus one and a plus three for a knockout say or a plus five for going the you know whatever categorize you want to do different points for different uh, methods of winning for example those kind of things which is sort of what the box rec rating is trying to do yeah. but they've gone very convoluted with it for me my starting point is i just want a rough idea how are they fighting you know and also, it requires you, really, you've got to look at the cards. You know, points, decisions, we want to know really how many rounds they're winning generally. And we also want to know, basically, when they're, we've got to be honest, when they're being robbed. You know, there's, yeah. um, you know, there's a whole series of German fighters who fought predominantly in Germany. And anyone would think, looking at their records and, you know, so on, that they were absolute superstars. You know, if you could ever coax them out of Germany, away from German judges, you would, you know, if you hadn't looked at it at that level, the top line stats wouldn't have told you the whole story. And essentially, if you hadn't watched any of those fights, you wouldn't have known how bad some of the robberies had been, I suppose. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah. creating that context to um, the wins, you know, we, we don't want to win just to be a win. and We don't want a loss just to be a loss. There's no reason why if someone loses, we can't give them a positive rating for that loss because they may have been exceptional. But the one thing that um, isn't so clearly uh, detailed, and you won't really find it, is uh, you know training camp information and weight cutting. I still think that one of the most... You would have sure. thought it's so heavily publicized that it must be in the odds. I still think people either undervalue or misunderstand the nature of cutting weight. And that's where boxers, who pe people who've actually done some boxing themselves, can understand how significant certain weight cuts are. So weight cutting at one weight is not the same as another. Some people, you know, have not cut the weight until well into the trading camp. And you're thinking to yourself, this isn't going to be a steady, easy decline into the weight. This is going to be some drastic sauna type stuff going on to get this down. Yeah. Alternatively, you know, going up a weight, is the power going to go up? You know, are they going to translate? You know, they're going up to, you know, people think, oh, putting on the muscle mass will translate to strength but anyone who's sort of 
I suppose, thrown a punch in anger at any point will know that there's a lot of timing involved. It's not necessarily how big your bicep is or, you know, how much muscle mass you've managed to put on. So those nuances, you can't quantify them. You can't put a number easily on them. So therefore, that is exactly where someone who's read all their articles, got the little snippet interviews about how the training camps are going, seen some footage, hopefully, look around the face, you know, are they losing the weight fast? All these little elements... And eventually you can start to realize, okay, the market always underestimates, say, this scenario, this weight loss, this type of judges, you know, see what judges there are. If you can find patterns which are consistently underrated and overrated, it becomes less about, I mean, it's tempting just to say big name fighters are overrated, but that's not, you know, that's not necessarily true. But um, you've got to find these kind of, I suppose, consistent errors within the market. Um, a nice resource for this is I talked about uh, what I call odds awareness. And even if you don't have, you know, even if you never open a spreadsheet or never try to, you know, calculate anything, you can go to something like proboxingodds.com. It's got a lovely archive. Yeah, great um, website. Yep. Great website. Great. And you've got alerts. So even when bookmakers put up their odds for a fight, you get to see the opening things. It's got a nice little graph so you can see where the price has moved. But you can see historical odds, not just for the fight prices, but for various different, you know, method of victory markets and so on. And you can read an article about the run up to a fight. And then you can go back and look and see, well, what do the odds do? And it's like, okay, you know, so and so, you know, you can look at the way in, how did the odds move around that time? You can look, see consistently, oh, you know, Pacquiao's uh, odds crash late over and over again. Um, because a lot of uh, patriotic Manila money comes in, let's say, and you'd be like, okay, so if I if I fancy Pacquiao, I've got to bet him early, and if I don't, maybe I've got to bet him right, literally the last minute before the bell goes. You know these kind of patterns, but you know over time you know that right. So we've done our good performance, bad performance for all those Ws and all those Ls, and then we've seen gone off 1.5, 1.6, 1.4, 1.7. 1. You can see, right, so these kind of levels of performance have moved the odds that they fight. Because generally, you know, a lot of fights happen at sort of gaps in skill, you know, if we're trying to protect a a person's record or something like that. But there'll be sometimes key fights where either a new up-and-coming fighter comes up against, I suppose, what often is called the gatekeeper, keeping track specifically of gatekeeper fights um, for the division. You know, there'll be someone who you do that A versus B versus C versus a you know you look at the circle quite often there's a fighter in the middle who sort of fought them all and is your point of reference in a weird way so keeping track of that and what odds each of those fighters were against that one person you can then do a sort of like well hang on he was 1.5 against him then he was 1.5 against him and yet he was 2.5 against and he's like you can look for oh this can't fit so some so one of those prices at some point was wrong so we find out which one was wrong, and then we can find out which fighter was underrated or overrated potentially, and you can sort of muscle it round in your head. But you only get to do that naturally by just looking. You know, if someone says to you what price was um, Lomachenko in his last fight, if you don't know sort of straight away, then that's something to build on because if you know what he was in his last fight, you know what his opponent was in his last fight. And then you know how good you thought in your head their opponents in those fights were and how they won them. You've already got this basis point of sort of when they meet each other, 
you know, how the odds should fall. Now it's going to be pretty rough. You know, you're not going to be getting it to like the nearest five, even 10% maybe, but it's amazing how often you can ask someone who thinks they know the sport quite well, who's favorite for this fight. And they can't necessarily tell you. Yeah. It's incredible. Really. You know, someone who really loves their, you know, the fight, you know I mean? I, I swear there'll be people out there, you know, who um, Thurman Pacquiao coming up, right? You know, there, there'll be people out there who wouldn't necessarily know who the favorite for that fight is. Um, you know, it's quite close as it is at the moment, as yep. the odds stand, you know. But um, you should be able to sort of build up a feel for these kind of things um, just by looking at odds over and over again. And uh, and I would say if you do ever want to, you know, open a spreadsheet, I know it's not much fun, but just keeping a track of fights, what the odds were, and how you grade the performance. You know, just use any system you like. Give it A, B, C, D, 1 to 10. Grade the fighter's performance, the previous fights. Because if there are people who constantly win in ugly, unfashionable ways, but still reasonably convincingly, you know, we still like, in terms of boxing, you know, we still like great bodies, great style, and, you know, to win in the right ways that still sort of is what we love to see. And sometimes all that translates into the odds because they know that the punters will want to bet the good-looking, stylish fighters who sort of have that sort of presence as being, you know, that sort of alpha presence as someone who's physically, you know, athletically brilliant. And you can get some fighters who, yes, are just cagey or trappy or just hard to wear down, these kind of things. That's often where the, you know, so much of, to be honest where the great value in boxing is away from the headline fight. Yeah. You, you touched on it there, the, the, the kind of the practice of, of odds awareness, um, which is it's certainly something that I kind of practice and, and, and try to, I've certainly tried to improve on over the years. But for me, that's one of the, it's one of the kind of the tangibles in this kind of intangible world that you, you, can, you can have a, a spreadsheet and you can say, well, okay, this fight has been announced or this fight has been rumored, let's say Furman Pacquiao, that gets announced on the day or or, or let's say it's, it's kind of been speculated about because by the time fights get announced these days, most of the time you'll have the odds up with at least one book or, or, or several firms in, in advance. For me, the, the, the kind of the art is in getting that right. So, it, okay, so we've got fighter A versus fighter B. I think snap reaction, their price will be, I don't know, four to nine, 1.4, whatever it may be. And then over time, it, it, it's kind of working out how to get your your first guess much closer to the the kind of the opening price, or certainly the price that the market kind of settles or matures at. And if you, if you ask someone, as you say, uh, the man in the street, who is a favourite for this fight, or actually what what odds would this would this guy be? Obviously, you you have the kind of promoter spiel that every fight is 50-50, and you you check the odds, and actually you've got one guy who's who's ten on or eight on or whatever it might be. Um, mm. I, I guess it applies to every sport, but particularly in boxing, I think there's a very good number of decent judges, very good judges of the sport and what they're watching, but much much fewer in terms of how to effectively or, or kind of accurately apply what you know to to the odds to betting and 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 how that kind of translates over to the to the numbers and that's something that is very very difficult i think to to make work but i think it's kind of crucial to to kind of getting it right more often than not or certainly turning a profit more often than not i think also just understanding where where sort of market pressures lie i mean thurman pacquiao thurman opened up not strong maybe 1.7 or something like that i think maybe um and we're sort of flipped really 
and I couldn't, I don't have an archive of all uh, Pacquiao's fights to hand, but you can definitely find because people have their fighter who they like, and because you know big fights are not as common as they like, they tend to sort of concentrate a lot of emotional money in one little spot. So if you find fighters that do have this sort of consistent sort of approach, I mean, Pacquiao is probably one of the better examples. I mean, I, I remember being told all the time to, you know, bet against Pacquiao late um, if you were going to bet because sort of he attracted a lot of money pressure, weight of money. But, you know, he's just one example and, and one that's probably better known. But over time, you know, you might find, you know, other fighters that sort of behave consistent. Like, I don't know what Triple G, for example, is, odds behavior is like but he may have a pattern that may be consistently and that way just sort of even knowing the direction that's likely it would be lovely to have um you know it would have been lovely to have had a, a bet on uh, manny when the odds opened and be sitting here now deciding whether you wanted to just uh take your money and leave at this point you know yeah, so, yeah. for me one factor that never um one, one kind of attribute that's never quite factored in enough to a market is is home advantage Obviously, mm. Pacquiao isn't isn't particularly a fighter who's, who's kind of ever really had that, um, having moved to the States so young. But when it comes down to the judges, when it comes down to a contentious um, scorecard, or certainly in a fight that's likely to go the distance, you look at the variables. You you know who is the who's the home fighter, what what stadium or what arena are they fighting in, who's who's the promoter of the show, what nationality of the judges, and so and so on. So it, it's striking for me that in uh, let's say football football betting home advantage is such a factor and it has such, such a uh, weight on the market and you know it, it's kind of absorbed so much into the price and actually in boxing it's certainly not as much as I believe it should be a lot of the time and, and I think that's where certainly when you get on the prices fairly early that there, there is an edge to be to be had um, and and a small I'm hoping not I'm not going to be too highbrow here but a small little exercise you can do is you can look at fighters at home and you can take their odds and turn them into percentages chances of winning and you can multiply those percentages out and see how many times that fighter should have won and then how many times they do win so you might multiply out and you'll get some funny number with decimals so so and so should have had 16.4 wins according to all those odds added up, multiplied out, added, multiplied out, added, multiplied out, added. And in fact, they've won 25 bouts. So what you're saying is the odds haven't fully captured potentially how that fighter, you know, gets the, the rub of the green at home. And you can choose to do that with anything you like. So you can choose to do, you know, orthodox versus southpaw, how many is expected to win, fairly simple, just one cell divided by another added up, you know, um, if you're doing Excel. Um, or you can choose, you can group lengths of reach, difference, or whatever it may be, but just using the odds. The odds are your most powerful tool available to you. The closing odds will tell you what the market thinks will happen. And if you can find an angle where what the market thinks is going to happen is very different to what actually does happen, that is where angles are often built. I mean, I, yeah, I think the German fighter example I gave earlier, as I say, I think home advantage is still under bet as something that people don't factor in correctly or enough. Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, Matthew, I think we'll round off there, but I have got one question and, and I can't resist asking it to you. And that would be kind of thinking back, would you have a favorite bet? Favorite bet was 
not actually predicated on much uh, prediction. It, it was uh, Hatton versus um, Costa Zoo. I basically uh, had a flatmate at the time who um, pretty much armbarred me in that Hatton was going to win the fight. Uh, and uh, <laughs> and yeah, it was, I think it's probably the first boxing bet I ever had. God, how long ago is that fight now? Must be 2000 and... Of, uh, five, six. Yeah, something yeah. like that. But yeah, that was so. That was the first. But he was. Um, he absolutely told me that you know I absolutely had to um get um get involved in that. So that was um, yeah, that was uh, <laughs> the, first, the the most the most memorable bet. And I don't. I didn't even sort of really. You know, he was talking to me about oh the body punching and this kind. Of, and I was just kind of like, oh, I'll just take your word for it. This guy was called John. Said, I'll just take your word for it, John. But yeah, I remember um. I remember staying up and thinking, God, this better be worth it. But um, but I did work with a guy, which is sort of a slightly different story. I did work with a guy who um, flew over to Vegas to see Bruno Tyson. And uh, it was t- he'd saved up uh, a load of money to go fly. A load of guys. This is was sort of before my time um, in terms of he'd, I, this guy I worked at my first betting job with. Right. Uh, and he said, oh, it was tremendous. Like, literally, the plane over there was like a circus. Like, everyone was, like, all English fans, <laughs> like, all Bruno fans, just absolutely running running wild. Uh, got in there, and just all of us bet Bruno. Like, just literally, everyone just went up to, uh, went oh, up to wow. the counter. All of us were betting Bruno, like that. <laughs> it's like, and, uh, and he said, and so what was incredible was that Bruno was on the plane with them on the way back home. And okay. I just thought that has got to be the most awful. Imagine being surrounded. Everyone there's done, done their brains on the fight <laughs> and had to watch, obviously, what was a, a pretty, um, pretty horrible ending, you know, like that. And he Bruno, was on yeah. the plane. And I just thought to myself, God, uh, if I was Bruno, I must have just wanted to. I probably would have done it. I would have swum back to England <laughs> instead of being on that plane filled with like drunk and slightly broke uh english boxing fans it's kind of pile, of pile of losing bet slips all around him yeah 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 um matthew thank you so much um it's been a pleasure chatting to you actually it's been most enjoyable mm, it's my pleasure tom you're listening to the boxing betting show that was matthew Trenhale, and if you're interested in hearing more from him you can find the inside betting podcast to stream in all of the usual places Turning our attention to the weekend then, I caught up with Chris Walker, writer for Boxing News, Sky Sports and more to get his analysis on the weekend's betting. Chris Walker, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm excellent. Thank you, Tom. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I heard last week's show with John. I was very impressed. So I'm flattered that you've decided to have me on tonight. So it's um, it's great to be joining you. Most people will know you, I guess, from from Boxing News, um, Sky Sports, Hannibal Box, all over really. But I know very well that you're a kind of a keen better as well. I think I've lost count of the number of times we've had kind of one-on-one conversations, um, sharing our bets each weekend. This is the first time, obviously, that one of those will be broadcast to the world. So no pressure. We'll start with a big one, Chris. Pacquiao Thurman from the MGM Grand in Las Vegas, the BBC on Fox pay-per-view, ITV box office pay-per-view in the UK, of course. One of the biggest fights of the year in what's been a pretty quiet year, actually, so far. It's a really interesting fight in terms of the pre-fight movement in the odds markets, at least for someone who gets excited about that kind of thing like I do. And there's been a a fair bit of of movement either way. Pacquiao is now the best price, 10 to 11 slight favourite 
that's minus 110 for those listing in the US. And as short as 8 to 11, it's about 137. So he actually opened the underdog 11 to 10, but as big as 11 to 8, 13 to 10, 6 to 5. That was the first time he's been considered the underdog since actually the Mayweather fight over four years ago. And kind of all looked set to, to kind of go into the build-up until the last week of June, first week of July, when there was a flip-flop, when the money came rushing in for Pacquiao to send him favourite. Now, obviously, these are fine margins, very, very close odds. Um, 10 to 11 on for Pacquiao suggests 52% likely that he's going to win the fight. So it's as close to 50-50 as realistically you, you kind of get. But there has been that flood of money on Pacquiao. Now, the guest I spoke to earlier in the show, Matthew Trenhale, he said traditionally or kind of over the years, if you're going to back Pacquiao, you either do so very, very early when the, the odds are first posted or you do so very late after the, the movement has happened. That seems to be exactly what's happened here with the, the Furman fight. How do you see it, Chris? And what do you think the reasons for the move are? I think the the big item that we had in the build-up was the, the announcement of the VADA testing. Um, I think that would have filled Pacquiao backers with a lot of confidence. Um, obviously, there's been sustained rumours about obviously Pacquiao's use of PEDs over the years, um, his relationship with his previous strength and conditioning coach, and I think I think the announcement of the obviously there's no VAR the testing did they, they kind of coincide with Pacquiao going um, right into like eight to eleven? I don't know whether that inspired some punters out there. I think where it is now is probably justified. I think the ten to eleven on Pacquiao is probably about right. I think Fairman should probably be around the same. To be fair, it is hard to to pick a favourite in this one. Obviously, you've got Pacquiao's form going into the fight. His last three performances of certainly not the Pacquiao of old, but there has been glimmers of hope. Um, perhaps he may have too much for Fairman, too much speed, too much experience. But it is one of those fights where I think pretty much 10 to 11, both fighters, 5 to 6, both fighters would be, be fair enough. I mean, it's interesting. Furman opened as short as 4 to 7 on, um, 4 to 6, 8 to 11 in places. He's drifted all the way out. This is the first time Furman has ever, ever been an underdog in his career pre-fight. But I, I think I'm like you. It, it is very, very close to a 50-50. And I think you can make a strong argument for both men or kind of a weak argument for either and, and, and say, well, I'm not going to bother picking a winner here at all. But that's not really the game we're, we're in. I think I think picking the winner is one of the hardest things I've had to do. I, the, the fight I always go back to is when James DeGale fought Andre Durell in 2015. I think that that's probably the hardest fight I've ever had to pick. Um, I could see reasons why both men had the win. I think the odds were, were pretty close back then as well, and I, I couldn't make a case for the winner. Fairman Pacquiao is very much in that bracket. If Fairman would have come back against um, Jacinto Lopez back in, I think it was the back end of January, and look dominant and look very impressive, then I'd be very inclined to pick Furman in this fight and yeah, just go yeah. on the form. But that performance left a lot to be desired. I know we've been out of the ring a very long time. Um, he's, he's, he's suffered a lot of injuries, but I still think the platform that people put Furman on, the good wins he's had in his career, the likes of Sean Porter, Danny Garcia, um, I mm. think Furman should have been dealing with the the likes of Josito Lopez a lot better than what he did. Obviously, the same month you had Pacquiao, who put in a very good performance against Adrian Broner. Didn't really do much to increase his stock or increase his legacy. I think we know what to expect from Broner now, but two weeks before Fairman fights, Pacquiao looks very good, and then Fairman goes into that struggle against Lopez. So that was probably one of the reasons why this fight is so hard to pick at the moment. If we judge Fairman on that last fight, I can't go into him in this fight with full confidence. So I really don't know at this moment. I'm probably just siding with Manny Pacquiao. He's been there, done it. Apart from the Mayweather fight, 
and obviously the, the fight with Marquez when he was stopped in the sixth round. He's been in every single fight, even if you look at his defeat against Tim Bradley, which was ridiculous. You look at his defeat yeah, against yeah. Jeff Horn, he, he was very much in the fight. No one's been able to dominate Pacquiao um, over 12 rounds, with the exception of Floyd Mayweather, who's pretty much just been in a different bracket than any fighter, obviously, over the last 20 years. I can't see Fairman doing a good job on Pacquiao. I think Pacquiao's got enough speed to make it interesting. He can do the 12 rounds, no problem. And he's probably getting Fairman at just a good time. I don't think Keith's 100% as he showed in the performance against Lopez. I probably would go with Pacquiao in this fight, but it's not a confident pick whatsoever. No, I, I kind of agree. And Fairman, for me, has always been a strange... I won't say always. There was a time when he was looking like a, a real kind of killer coming up through the ranks, but... Since he's arrived at world level, he's been a, a fairly strange, a kind of difficult fighter to really get a hold on. You know, he's got this one-time nickname, which implies that he was this real puncher. In the last five years, he's only had two stoppages, and those were uh, Luis Colasso and, and Julio Diaz. Two of the last seven, five going the distance. He's kind of abandoned that idea that he is this knockout artist um, he, that he was originally sold as. As you say, he didn't in, didn't look good against Lopez. I thought he was the rightful winner. But again, and looking before that, you know, he... He's fought very, very good opposition, and that is in his or to his credit. You know, Porter, Garcia, these are wins at welterweight, pretty much as good as anyone else has got other than Pacquiao, and that's kind of going back a few years. But I think for the most part, Furman does, in his own way, flatter to deceive a little bit. He's he's, he's often very cagey. He does enough to win, but he, he's not kind of bowling anyone over at the moment. That said, there is a, a kind of a case that the timing is right for him rather than it is for Pacquiao. Pacquiao's 40 years old now. On Pacquiao's side, when he wins decisions, and he, he usually does, he does generally win them well. All of his decision wins have been by unanimous decisions since 2011. He's still in the, the habit of dominating fights when he wins them, but when he doesn't, he's you know he, he kind of looks a little bit a little bit ragged. I think for me, all signs in this fight point to it going um, the distance. I, I can't see. A uh, stoppage win for either man, really. Four to eleven that we see the full twelve rounds, Chris. Uh, is two seven five. Imply probability seventy three percent that we see the twelve rounds. For me, I think the the actual likelihood is a bit higher. Yeah, I, I think talking about also the fights going the distance. I think when you look at Pacquiao, sometimes you get into like discussions on social media or forums, or you have them with boxing people. I think Pacquiao is one of the all time great chins. I think if you look at the the great names that he's been in with. Um, I know he was like hit against Marquez, um, but I think when you look through his record, he's been in with some very big punches and, and, and he stood with them. He's fought fire with them. So I think to for Fairman to go in there and, and, and stop Pacquiao or to hear Pacquiao, when obviously there's, there's, there's much lesser fighters than Pacquiao, we've gone the distance with Fairman. Yeah. I, I, I just can't see Fairman being able to do anything to Pacquiao that, that's going to get him out of there or deter him. Like I said, I think he's a, a fully-fledged welterweight now. He's proved that by the standard of opposition he's been in with over the years. Um, I think if you look at his run at welterweight, he has been steady at the weight. Um, so I think if Fairman's going to find a shot to, to hurt Pacquiao, it, it needs to be the money shot. And I just don't see him landing that. These are two capable 12-round fighters used to go on the distance at championship level against good names. I think we are going to hear the final bell on this one. Yeah, and I mean, there's nothing to really suggest that Thurman is, is going to try. He seems fairly content, at least of late, to sort of peck away, to, to go the 12, to do enough over the distance to win a, a decision, whether that ends up being fairly tight or, or not. 
I personally can't see him looking for the stoppage. I can't see Pacquiao being timed in the same way that, say, Marquez timed him. Furman's not that kind of fighter. Yeah, I think for me, look, it takes a very specific type of better to back a 4-11 to 11 shot with any, any confidence. But if short prices are your style and if you're looking for a real kind of chunky bet that's a, that's a lock this weekend... I think you could probably do a lot worse. It's certainly not one that I'll be I'll be steaming into again purely because that's not my my style. But again, as a, as a single or as accumulated material, even for those that way inclined, I think it's um, I think that's a solid price. And likewise, actually, that we see even over 9.5 rounds. So we go into the tenth round effectively, three to ten. So around one to three um, that we see. 10 rounds again it looks a little bit big to me i think i expected to see kind of one to four one to five that we we see the full 12 here i think if you follow on statistics that's what a lot of a lot of gamblers do that bet's just one of the simplest ones so going into the method of victory market then obviously we, we said there is a difficulty in picking the guy who's going to win but if we look at if we double up how difficult this is if we if we look at how each guy might win again you, you'd have to lean towards the the decision for both Pacquiao is eight to five, thirteen to eight ish to win any type of decision. As I pointed out earlier, actually, he's got this kind of good run of unanimous decisions. He's eleven to four to win on all three cards against Thurman. Thurman's seven to four to win the decision, thirty-six percent likely according to the numbers. He is, I guess, technically the the house fighter here, the the kind of PBC stalwart. KO markets nine to two Pacquiao, Thurman six to one neither of which really appeal as we've as we just said i think for those looking for bigger prices there's potential actually in in a few of the the side markets here draws out at 20 to 1 i think for any any price or any any fight rather that's looking to go the distance or you think will go the the full 12 and the fights are going to be separated by a round or two 20 to 1 is a bit big for me i would have had it um a fair bit shorter it is shorter elsewhere at 16 to 1 but 20 to 1 best price Pacquiao split decision nine to one, Thurman ten to one split decision, Pacquiao majority eleven to one, Thurman twelve to one. So if you want to be creative and, and dutch a few of those to split the majority of the draw, you could probably craft out a, a fairly decent price for yourself there. In regards to the draws that you mentioned, Tom, I'm more of a, a back of the draw in play, um, especially on yep. certain shows where commentary is telling a different story to the actual fight. Um, I'm not sure if, if Bucky's are following what the commentators say, but I get the feeling that they do. So I'll probably stay away from the draw beforehand. And I think I think the 13 to 8 on Pacquiao decision is the direction I'm going to go with this one. Okay. You mentioned the, the draw then backing in play. I think, and I, I'll touch on this in kind of future episodes as well. For those who do go in with slightly bigger stakes and who are confident with using the exchange backing at 20 to 1 and and kind of laying off either later in the fight saving and kind of hedging your bets until later or laying off incrementally throughout and building up a, a decent book there in a very very close fight you, you kind of the draw can go as short as four as five so backing at 20 that that gives you plenty to play with obviously if the fight goes according to plan but it, it's um it's a tactic that can work very well but it, there's a, a fairly high risk appetite there i think if that's your kind of thing right moving on to the undercard chris is there anything there that takes your fancy um your dennis yugas at one to two against yeah. figueroa that's probably the standout on the undercard for me yugas is a, a very solid weight welterweight i know figueroa's undefeated but he's looked very inconsistent in a lot of his performances and uh, most notably his controversial win over ricky burns a few years back 
And I think taking Ugas at one to two, a, a very solid welterweight who's been in with good opponents. I think that's probably the, the standout price on the undercard for me. I'm glad you said that about Ugas, actually. I thought the one to two, minus 200, I thought that was a very good price. I was expecting to see a fair bit shorter. I was actually thought it would kind of be maybe one to five-ish. He's a bit shorter elsewhere. It's kind of two to seven is around three to ten, which I think is still okay. But one to two looks solid to me. Lots of people thought he was unlucky against Porter. He's much this kind of superior boxer to Figueroa. It's an interesting kind of style clash. And it, obviously it could be one of those which... If it goes the, the distance, depends on what the, the judges like, but one to two looks decent to me. Chris, then over to the O2 big matchroom pay-per-view Saturday night, Dillian White, Oscar Rivas headlined, and a few kind of interesting heavyweight fights further down the card as well. David Allen, David Price, uh, and Derek Chisora, Artis Spilker as well. Looking at the main event, Dillian White opened a big, big favourite, one to seven with Paddy Power Betfair. Clipped in slightly since actually, settled about one to five, it was minus 500. Few going as big as two to nine, even four fifty. Rivas is the best price, four to one underdog. There is some seven to two, um, ten to three around on him as well. Draw out at twenty-five to one. How do you see this one, Chris? I think the four to one on Rivas is an outstanding price. I think. Um, okay. I think the, the, the free heavyweight title fights we're going to talk about. I think the the underdog in every fight is an excellent price. Uh, I think putting three three of them together. As a potential treble, um, I think you'll probably pay around the 45, 50 to 1 mark. I think the fights are a lot closer than what the bookies have got them. Um, White is he's someone who has made big improvements since the Joshua fights. I don't think that could be denied. If you, if you look at the Lucas Brown win last year, I think it was March last year. Um, so probably going back about 15 months. Um, if you look at that win against Lucas Brown, it was identified as a brilliant win at the time. And I think in regards to what happened between Lucas Brown and Dave Allen, it has took a tiny bit of a shine off the Dillian White fight for me. I think the Joseph Parker win was good. I am a big fan of Parker. I think he's a very useful heavyweight. And then he went over all ground with Chisora. But I think Rivas is a, is a very, very basic textbook fighter who does everything right. And I don't think he'll get drawn into the type of fight that White wants. Um, I think when you look at his last fight against Jennings, a narrative attached to that fight that he was pretty much getting schooled for every round and then he pulled a stoppage out in the last round. That certainly wasn't the case. He was in the white fight all the way through against a very, very good fighter in Jennings and he pulled the fight out in the last round. So I think White probably will just get over the line, but I wouldn't put anyone off taking the 4-1 to one on Rivas. I think last weekend was kind of an interesting one in, in a weird way for sort of reframing this fight. Obviously, Rivas did pull the slight upset against Jennings, but we saw against Joe Joyce that Jennings is still a very, very good fighter. Um, yeah. And I think for Rivas to stop him in the way that he did, it's a very, very solid win. Do you not think the, the size advantage is an issue here? Um, Rivas is kind of six foot-ish. White is a much bigger man. Yeah, I think Rivas's boxing IQ is going to make a big difference in that, though. I think like, if, you, if you look back at his amateur record, there's some great wins on there. Um, he's an undefeated fighter as well. Um, from what I hear, he handles himself well in sparring. I think there's a lot of caution in Dillian White's matchmaking these days. I think the, like, the people looking after him think he's on the cusp of something special, whether it's a, a wilder fight or a rematch with Joshua or maybe even getting Tyson Fury somehow. Like I said, he, he, he was speaking with other promoters. He was after a massive fight. But I just get the feeling that they just want to tread carefully and not want to like risk falling apart before he gets that fight and 
there's a good chance it could upset him this Saturday, though. I think Rivas is a solid, solid operator, does everything really well. Like I said, I watched the Jennings fight and I, I took a look at Rivas this week just just before, obviously, I, I make a prediction before I was coming onto this show. And I think he's a very good fighter. I, I think, as I said earlier, I think White should just get over the line only just, but this is closer to a 50-50 than, than what the odds suggest. White is, he's a much, much improved fighter, certainly since Joshua and kind of, I think one of the key factors he's got is momentum, um, which is something I'm going to touch on in another fight in, in a moment. In terms of the odds, it's quite interesting. He's a longer favourite. He, he's a bigger favourite for this fight than he was against Chisora in December. He was about one to three there, um, obviously one to five here. And he was the same price about one to three versus Lucas Brown, which again, in hindsight, seemed pretty, pretty ludicrous. <clears throat> Six to four underdog, a little bit shorter as well, close to even money against Parker. He's won nine straight since the um, that Joshua defeat. He's won the last three of the five by stoppage. One of those was kind of a 105-year-old Malcolm Tan, so we're not going to read much into that. But there's no real strong trend to how he gets it done. But he does have this knack of, of kind of getting it out, really, and, and just, as you say, getting over the line somehow. And he's a hard man to back against purely in terms of his style, his size. This is a fight that's favoured to go the distance, eight to 11 four to six-ish that we see the uh, the full 12 rounds odds against six to five that we get a stoppage and white 11 to 10 to win by decision 13 to eight by stoppage the, the fair odds um like i said i think white's a very competent 12 round fighter and um, he fights at a good pace i know he almost came unstuck against joseph parker um, in that final round that was quite dramatic but I think he is a good conditioned heavyweight and going the 12 rounds is no problem for him. Um, you see him Rivas um, last fight against Jennings. He still had plenty in the tank to turn that fight back in his favour. So I think we have got two good fit heavyweights who are capable of going to the final bell. And like I said, both both seem very tough guys as well. So I'd be very surprised if he was a stopper or knockout in this one. Uh, Rivas is big as 17 to 2, so 8.5 to 1 effectively, um, to win a decision. Um, and he's actually the same price to win by KO. So actually, the the bookies don't think he's going to win. He's four to one um, underdog. But in terms of how he'll do it, they don't really have a preference there either. It's kind of fifty-fifty um, either way. Okay, we'll move on to probably for many people this will be the um, the most anticipated fight on the card: David Allen versus David Price. In the immediate kind of aftermath of the Lucas Brown fight, this is the one that I really wanted to see next. So I'm I'm quite happy we're we're actually going to see it um, play out. Talking about momentum, as I did for Dillian White, that's something that David Allen has kind of in spades, really, um, at the moment. Fresh off a, a career-best win against Lucas Brown, linking up with Darren Barker, obviously a very, very loved fighter. He is the he is the favourite here. It, this is a 50-50 fight to many, at least kind of anecdotally. But if you look at the odds, Allen is a pretty clear favourite. Two to five, short of four to 11 here. A general price is about four to nine. So about 71% actually likely to win the the fight according to the odds which is a long way from 50 50. price is general seven to four as big as two to one uh, i think it's a very close fight um two to one on price is unbelievable this is another one i can't i can't pick the winner in um i can see price hurting him early uh, and getting him out but like i said it's, it's it's that conundrum with price that if it goes past four or five rounds then i think the fight's going to go in dave allen's favor um it, it, it's just, <laughs> we talk about boxing, how unpredictable it can be, how it can be a crazy sport, but if you go back like maybe four or five years ago, would you ever imagine that David Price would be 2-1 to one against Dave Allen? It's just the way things have turned out here, it's just absolutely crazy. 
obviously I know that you you probably know David Price fairly well. I've I've spoke with both guys this week, and um, I've spoke with both for Sky Sports this week, and I, I don't know. I, I just I, I still think I know what Price is capable of doing. Like I said, the, the sparring stories, things like that. It, it, it's not a myth. It, it, it's all genuine truth and. The power in the right hand is there. Um, there's fighters who can admit to that, that they felt the power, but we, we just haven't seen it often enough, especially in the last four or five years where he's just struggled for any sort of consistency in his career. So I, I can see why people might have Alan a slight favourite, but I, I think Price at 2-1 to one is, is just something that I just never thought I'd see. I, I still can't believe it now. Alan is odds-on, actually, to win by stoppage. Four to six that he does... Um... Price is roughly the same price to win by um, stoppage as he is to win outright, 2 to 1, 21 to 10, 15 to 8, which kind of tells you all that you need to know about how people are viewing this fight. It's that he, he needs to get Allen out of there. And for most people, I think the consensus seems to be that actually he has to do it pretty early because we know that he, obviously we know his vulnerabilities, but we know that he does have this kind of stamina issue sometimes as well. We've seen him fade. Um, and, and unravel. So there are some big prices around four to one inside the first six rounds, six to one inside the first four rounds. Alan, among many things, has, he has a, ver- a very good chin. That won't necessarily matter against someone who has the, pro- uh, the power rather of, of David Price in that right hand. This fight is one to 10 on that it doesn't go the distance. If, if you are subscribing to that belief that Price has to get him out of there early, it opens it up to what could potentially be a very, very fun fight to watch. It could be a bit of a firefight. Um, Alan nine to three inside the first three rounds, eleven to eight inside the first six. I think that'll be quite a popular bet, and five to two in the first four rounds. The odds actually get a little bit crazy when you you start playing contrarian and saying, well, hang on, what what if none of that actually happens? For Alan to win a decision, it's ten to one best price, general eight to one. Now, the the question is, look, for me that looks actually really big. <clears throat> But it, it, it sounds absurd at the same time. You know, what if he doesn't get him out of there? He doesn't always throw loads of punches. What if it's, yeah. uh, uh, I, you know. I, I said similar to, to Declan Taylor um, on social media recently. And yeah. the, the one thing I find with, obviously, every time Price he's lost, he, he's lost within the distance. Um, and I, I, he's never been 10 rounds. I think the most he's been was eight after, I think it was after the, the second Thompson defeat when he when he relocated to Germany with the Salons. But I, I think, I, I, I don't know how Price is going to approach it. Um, I was with his trainer, Joe McNally, today. He didn't really give nothing away in regards to tactics. But there's one thing I've noticed about Dave Allen, that if a fight doesn't go his way, he sort of does slip into a bad routine. Done it against Lenroy Thomas. He, obviously, Tony Yoker, he was never in the fight. Um, but obviously, when he has made a good start, he's took advantage. But... Imagine Price come out and, and was able to build a, a slight lead of his jab. Um, three, four rounds, Alan loses interest and, and obviously just tries to stay in the fight. And the fact that it's only 10 rounds as well, um, it's, I don't think it's 12 rounds, this is it, there's no title on the line. So the fact that it's only 10 rounds as well, Price he probably does believe he can go 10 rounds, he's probably prepared for 10 rounds. So I don't think it's beyond the realms of fancy that this can go the distance, especially if Alan doesn't get off to a good start. If you look at Price versus um, Cash Ali last time, for me, that looked like it was before kind of all hell broke loose. It looked like that was slipping slipping towards a decision. And I was one that was on Price in the first six rounds that night. So it, for yeah. me, it, it was getting quite painful. But I think you're right. Look, there was a lot of talk and there was this kind of lingering, lingering doubt before, maybe before the Brown fight, maybe even further back, that 
Dave Allen was this was a gym fighter. You know, he, he looked very, very good in sparring and, and in training, but he struggled to put it all together. Maybe that's changed now. And look, the, the link up with Darren is looks to have been very, very good for him. This will be the first fight that Darren's actually in the corner as well, which which could make a big difference if, as you say, Alan gets a bit frustrated or his, or his head drops sort of halfway through. When he does get discouraged, and we, we've seen it over and over, he, he doesn't always throw enough to, to start winning rounds. And you go back to the Nick Webb fight, you know, he was... He was, I think he was down on the on the cards there, certainly as I was seeing it, and, and kind of pulled this Hail Mary out of nowhere. So, yeah, I mean, in, in a 10-round fight, it doesn't take much for a fight to, certainly a heavyweight fight, to fall into this kind of hug fest and, and, and slip away. So it kind of goes against all logic that it would actually happen, but I think there are worse bets at the same time than a, a go at the, um, the distance. Yeah, like I said, I think... Alan's probably going to expect Price to come out and make a fast start as well. Like I said, there's, we haven't really seen Price excel in the second half of a fight, so it might just be Alan's strategy to get there. But then on the flip side, Price might be expecting that Alan thinks he's going to make a good start and he might just try and win rounds on the jab and then maybe force Alan to try and take risks in the second half of the fight. There's a lot of possibilities in this fight. I think um, obviously everyone's expecting this to either be Price early or Alan in the second half, but Sometimes fights don't always pan out like that. I remember, I think it was, was it was it Wayne Braithwaite when he came over to fight Enzo Macanelli. You had two absolute massive punches. People just yeah. thought it was going to go like two, three rounds. And what we got was like a 12-round decision win for Enzo in a fight that didn't really live up to the expectation. It doesn't always work that way. Um, fighters can't consistently be explosive. Um, so th- there is some value in that, I, I, I think. I am finding it hard to pick a winner. I think obviously if the fight does go into the second half and David's put quite a bit into the first, then it might get hard for him and Dave Allen might take over. But it's a very good intriguing fight, and I think obviously the the ramifications for the loser are so serious that um, obviously it's it, it's going to be one of them ones where it might be hard to watch. I think there is an argument as well actually that the the price on Allen is a bit of a false one. He's Look, they're both very popular, kind of likable guys, but Alan is probably the, the, the more popular these days. Um, and if it hasn't happened already, you're going to get the kind of the, the wider audience start having a go, start having a nibble at Alan throughout the week. It's whether it's even 5, 10, 15, 20 pounds at a time. It's it's going to throw the market in a way that actually might not reflect the true, the true likelihood, um, as you say. Who would have ever ever thought Dave Allen would be four to eleven against big prices? <laughs> you know, um, so I think what I would say if you are tempted by a bet on on David Price to actually wait because I think the price on Allen, well, the Allen on Price is going to get a little bit shorter, and I think the four to six that he wins by stoppage will probably be one of the most popular bets on the on the entire card, if not the entire weekend, and I think it will probably get a little bit shorter. So there's there could be a, a benefit in in kind of biding your time there. The last one we're going to touch on on this card is the third heavyweight fight, Chisora versus Spilka. It figures to be kind of a, a fun fight, but not the most um, significant. Let's say Chisora is the general, he's a pretty firm favourite, two to seven, four to 11, <clears throat> um, four to nine. So pretty much the same size favourite as Allen is against Price, which is a, a, an interesting kind of comparison. Who, who's more worthy of being that, that, that size favourite? I'm, I'm guessing you're going to say Chisora. There's not much separates them. Um, I think for people like me and you, Tom, who've obviously followed 
the odds on boxing for a, a number of years. You might agree that Chisora is one of the most unpredictable guys to back. Yeah, so we've had this performance against Cabiel that just yeah. defied logic. Um, and then there was the performance against Carlos Taham last year. So you're getting a fighter who is very inconsistent. Um, he's capable of turning up and, and, and getting a good knockout win. And then when he's expected to win, he, he can put in a lackluster performance and then offer some excuses after it. 13 to 5 on Spilk is what I'm seeing now. And the fact he's a southpaw as well, there's not a lot of southpaw on, on Chisora's record. Um, I think when I think he fought Tyson Fury in the in the rematch, um, I think Fury knew that Chisora doesn't isn't keen on southpaws. Yeah. I think he spent he spent the bulk of the fight in the southpaw stance, which was a, a very strange tactic to approach. And then I think last time out Chisora fought Gashi, another southpaw. And Which was a uh, horrible, horrible fight, wasn't it? Yeah, I know. Although Chisora won everything um, on, on, on the cards, it wasn't convincing. And, and he got very frustrated. And I'd say Spilker's a very big step up from saying Agashi. I think I think there's a very good fighter in Spilker. I don't think he built on the um, his performance against Wilder. I, I think he felt sorry for himself quite a bit after that fight. He's been excellently schooled. Like I said, this is a guy who's with Ronnie Shields for a number of years. So he knows exactly what to do. He, he's had a good guy in his corner. And um, like I said, if you, if you compare Chisora to some of the names on Spilker's record, then Spilker's not going to be in order. Chisora, he's going to have no problems coming to the UK to fight him. I think 13 to 5 is a very, very good price. I think I think similar to the White Rivas fight, I think if, if Chisora is going to get over the line, it is going to be by the tightest of margins. So therefore, the value probably does lie with Spilker like it does with Rivas, in my opinion. I think if we can look at Spilker's losses, um, obviously there was a 10th round loss to Brian Jennings, I think if you go back about four or five years, and then there's absolutely no shame in getting stopped by Deontay Wilder. It doesn't matter what heavyweight you are today, or probably even if you go back in time, there's, there's no shame in, in losing to Deontay Wilder by a knockout. And there's quite a there's quite a bit of a buzz about Kalnachi at the moment. Um I think some people probably overrate him slightly, especially the guys at PBC. But there's, there's a lot to like about Spilker. I really think there is. Um, throwing the fact that he's a southpaw too, I think he'll be very confident coming to this fight against Chisora. I really do. I, I don't know if Chisora's, I think he's like 35, 36 now. He's certainly seen better days. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and and fighters know these things. Fighters know when a fighter's getting on and obviously when they're getting towards the end. So... I don't know, I think Spilk will come on, come over here, sorry, um, in a very confident mood. I find it really hard to pick a winner in this one. It's just, like I said earlier, Chisora is so difficult to back and, and he's so difficult to go against as well. Um, he's an absolute nightmare for people who take the betting on boxing serious, so it might be a fight worth staying away from. If I was to go with value, I'd go with Spilker. Like I said, I think he's a very, very good price. It's, it's razor tight, this one. It's really razor tight. Chris Walker, pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure, Tom. Anytime. It's been great talking to you as usual. This is the Boxing Betting Show. Chris Walker there talking to me earlier this week. Since our conversation, actually, the price we both like so much on your Dennis Ugas has collapsed. Um, from that one to two, we both fancied he's actually now a general one to four shot. This highlights two main points, I think. Firstly, that our instincts were correct and... If nothing else, it's kind of reassuring that in this case, we put ourselves on the right side of the market and acted accordingly before others rushed in too. 
And secondly, that, of course, everything is open to fluctuation. Markets are obviously very, very fluid situations and getting the value is sometimes as much about getting in quick as it is about ever getting there at all. So rather than edit out that part of the discussion, I thought it was worth keeping in just as an insight into how we evaluated that early price. That's about it for this episode. If you're having a bet this weekend, do gamble responsibly and enjoy the fights wherever you're watching them. I'll be back in a couple of weeks, but in the meantime, if you like the podcast, please do share it, subscribe, leave a review and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 